This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. All right, welcome. This is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the Executive Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. Um, and it's just me tonight. Uh, my co-hosts and colleagues, Anne Greenhall and Mike Yuseem, have the night off. So we're going to dig right into this conversation that we have um, because, you know, frankly, the banter that I would typically have with Ann and Mike is much less compelling if it's me talking to myself. Um, so I, I want to let you know for our listeners that our guest tonight um, is on campus to speak at the Fells Institute of Government as part of its public policy and practice series. Um, Rick Wade is vice president of strategic alliances and outreach at the U.S. U.S. Chamber of Commerce um, and has had a varied and very interesting career. We're going to explore all of that. Um, but before we get into it, let me just say welcome, Rick, and thanks for being here. Yeah, good, good to be here. Good all to right. be on college campus, man. Uh, there's, oh, with all the little people. <laughs> right? Absolutely. There's some kind of energy. <laughs> it right? is a lot even, of energy. Even, even on a moist day like that, today. That, that's right. Yeah. Right. So we're here. Um, here in the University of Pennsylvania campus, here at the Wharton School, and um, really excited about this conversation uh, that we're going to have with Rick. If, if I can, Rick, I'm just going to say a couple things about you to give our, our listeners a little bit of context, and then we'll we'll just dig right in here. So, before joining the chamber, uh, Rick, you were principal of the Wade Group, which is a strategic communications and global business development firm, and also uh, a partner at the Harvest Investment Group, which is a consultancy facilitating foreign direct investment in the U.S. Um, you were also a senior advisor to the 2008 Obama for America campaign, and you're a member of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. Um, you've served as a senior advisor, deputy chief of staff to former Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, member of the White House Task Force on Puerto Rico, um, the Interagency Business Council, former Vice President Joe Biden's Task Force on Middle Class America, um, there's like 10, 12, 15 more things that I could probably list right here. So we're going we're gonna to get your voice into this and, and kind of dive around here. Um, let me ask you a question that we often start with with our guests. So if you take yourself back to um, the age of one of these college students walking around here with lots of energy, um, lots of curiosity about what the future is going to, to hold for them, if you went back to when you were walking around a college campus, what did you think the future held for Rick Wade? Where did you think you would be um, at the time you are now? Uh, it, that's a great question. It would have been a future of optimism, hope, uh, 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 amazing possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be anything you want to be uh, if you work hard and get your education. Okay. That's that's how I would have been thinking, mm -hmm. and which I, I still uh, see that that's how students yeah. think, and that's the beauty I think of of being young. Yep. But the reality uh, eventually uh, kicks in, mm -hmm. and you understand that uh, reaching dreams uh, perhaps is not as easy, uh, but you still have to believe in that. Yeah. 
So that's what, that's how I was. I was the, the student leader. Uh, wanted to change the world. Right. Uh, starting at my own university of South Carolina in undergraduate uh, yep. school. Was involved in everything. And uh, and I'm better off for it because I think that's where I learned uh, the attributes uh, that I've learned uh, mm-hmm. about leadership. And and as an undergraduate at the University of South Carolina, um, were you thinking to yourself like one day, one day I'm I'm going to start my own consultancy. One day I'm going to work for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Did you have a destination in mind at that point? Not at all. Okay. But it was a one day I knew I wanted to lead. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to have impact. So my sort of ideas about the one day were more macro, more bigger, yeah. more thematic in terms of impact. But I didn't have a sense. I mean, quite frankly, in undergraduate, I was a biology chemistry major mm-hmm. and wanted to go to dental school. But, you know, a semester later, I want to go to law school. I right. want to go to medical school. And and so I don't know that I'm a good example uh, of, of that guy who plots a course right. uh, of, of action in undergrad and is very clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I joked about the, the reality is that I probably have only kept the job two or three years in my entire career. So I've had a career of twists and turns and right. places. But I'm better off for it because it's given me such a wide range of not only career experiences, but perspectives, uh, not just domestically, locally, but globally, right. all around the world. So I'm better off for it, yeah. uh, for these well, one-off and, experiences. And one of the things that we've certainly learned over the, the years that we've hosted this show um, is that a lot of people don't have a plan, and those that did uh, learned that they needed to adjust this, yes. right? And that, that that is part of kind of how we take up our place in yeah. this world. Yeah. Um, what was what was a an early first step for you? So you said you know you you originally had some thoughts maybe of uh, of going to dentistry school. Mm-hmm. Um, then maybe you thought about law school. What was what was a first step coming out of uh, the University of South Carolina? Well, you know, one of the first experiences coming from uh, I grew up in a, a very poor rural what was a textile town mm-hmm. in South Carolina, Lancaster, South Carolina, mm-hmm. geographically it'd be just below Charlotte, okay. but on the South Carolina side. And we grew up poor. I'm first generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my father was a forklift operator in a textile uh, a manufacturing a plant there. My mom was a nurse's assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, she never could become a nurse mm-hmm. because of some of the structural racism uh, in our society. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was first generation, so I really have a role model. And my role model became my local dentist, uh, who was the, the not only the local dentist, but he was the person that we all wanted to aspire to be like. Right. One, because he had a big house mm-hmm. and a lot of cars. <laughs> so so when I went to undergrad, uh, I, I, I went there with that sort of as my inspiration. Mm-hmm. And But one thing I did do in my undergrad ex- years, which I, I think was valuable for me, I took the, the chance to take every internship I could find. Mm. Uh, and I was an intern in the president's office at the University of South Carolina. And the first president of the United States I met was Ronald Reagan, who had come to the university wow. uh, for an event there. Uh, I was a page in the state capitol mm-hmm. and had a chance to, to meet and to understand how our political and democratic processes work. Mm-hmm. And I think those were the kind of things that started shaping me right. and my direction uh, were those early on experiences. Uh, and, and they were rich. I mean, student, you know, governor of the student legislature, right. very involved in student government. And I realized that I could really make a difference. I could lead. I could make an impact. And that's mm-hmm. when I started sort of refining uh, my trajectory. And when I left the university, uh, you know, without 
being certain of a job, my first job actually was an admissions recruiter. Okay. And uh, back then they gave me a station wagon and a, a, a bunch of boxes of brochures. Brochures, yeah. And they said, you have to go to New York and New Jersey. So my territory was New York and New Jersey. Didn't understand it, but it opened my eyes to uh, experiences and people yeah. far beyond and away from rural South Carolina. Right. So the only reason I say that is, again, it wasn't part of the plan, but it exposed me uh, mm-hmm. to new wonders and new realities and new possibilities by just taking off in different directions. The rest I, is history. Yeah, I, I, and I love that example. We've had um, on the show a few times Carol Dweck, who is a, a faculty member out at Stanford, mm-hmm. and she's done a lot of work on mindset and the way that mindset can contribute to both our sense of engagement as well as our learning and, and really tries to differentiate uh, the kinds of mindsets into growth mindsets versus fixed mindsets. Yes. And a, this growth mindset is all about what can I gain from this next experience being open to new experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly sounds like, as you're describing these formative experiences, undergraduate and right afterwards, that you were approaching them with a growth mindset. Right. Um, where do you think that came from for you, that kind of curiosity and willingness to put yourself in new environments? I think it came from uh, the way I was raised. I mean, again, yeah. we grew up when you, when you grow up poor. Right. You you are hopeful for a better life. You're right. hopeful for better experiences. And, you know, it, it, there is a motivation there to do more, to see more. And the more you see and the more you become exposed, the more you want to see and become exposed. And I think that was it for me as I mm-hmm. look back over my career. And 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 I mean those that that fundamental sort of framework has taken me all over the world, Jeff. I mean I've been in places you can't imagine, <laughs> and sometimes I look back and say, "Geez, how did I get in this room?" But yeah. I'm that guy who's curious, right? Because I think curiosity uh, breeds learning, and 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 it, it, it just expands your 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 vision mm-hmm. and your opportunities follow. Give us a little bit of a snapshot of that, if you would. What What is one of these kind of, you know, earlier in your career formative experiences where you couldn't believe you were in that room? Well, again, the first one was, you know, we're in this student ballroom and and I look around and I'm only black kid in this room with President Reagan. Right. And now today people wouldn't understand that right? because we're so politically Polarized, like, well, I just got in a room with President Ronald Reagan. Right. But, but for a young kid yeah. at my age, uh, coming out of high school and where I came from, right. to be in a room with the leader of the free world uh, says something about if I can be in a room with the leader of the free world, maybe I can become the right. leader of the free world. I mean, so you, I think we mentally yeah. do process that. Yeah. I'm in an environment. I'm on a playing field. That, and if you, you fast forward, which I hope we'll talk to Absolutely. talk about. I mean, now yeah. I've had the opportunity to kind of hang around a, a number of presidents right and not only in, in the United States but across the world right and I'm comfortable with that and and I think I drew that from that early on exposure and experience it is and, and I really appreciate you saying um, it, you know you're, you're comfortable with it because there is there's there's a skill um, we believe that's developed um, which is how can I be comfortable in these experiences, which are kind of totally new, have a lot of have a lot of um, 
novelty to them, but at, at the same time have um, the potential to have real impact right. on a person. So um, let me remind our listeners, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Um, I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and my guest is Rick Wade, Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Commerce. Um, he's here on campus uh, spending time with uh, a variety of student groups and was nice enough to stop by the studio for this conversation. So, um, Rick, I, I'm curious. I mean, there's so many ways we can go in this conversation. But um, a, as we start to kind of move through your career, um, one of the things that I'm struck with just in these 20 minutes we've known each other um, is you bring a lot of passion, mm-hmm. right? I, I can kind of feel the passion yeah. inside you. Uh, how how did you start to um, identify your passions and, and connect them into the work that you were going to do and the, the life you were going to lead? Yeah, and, and I think my passion actually stems from just being a person of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, my values are uh, I'm very clear. Um, a, a person of faith, I believe in certain tenets uh, that I've been taught as a kid uh, through my childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom used to make us go to Sunday school. We had to sing in the choir. I couldn't sing a note. Mm-hmm. But but I learned a lot about who I am, mm-hmm. and, and that is better to give than is receive. It's better to, to impact uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, nobody makes it in life on your own. Uh, right. Bring somebody else up with you. I mean, these are sort of some of the principles that I've uh, that have guided me, mm-hmm. and it is where I get my return. I mean, I to see other people experience uh, or benefit from my uh, contributions is that's the return on my investment. It's mm-hmm. not all about profit. It's about purpose. Right. And 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 it it works for me. The more I give, the more I receive. I it, 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 that's a basic tenet of my of my life and it's it's not more complicated than that. Yeah. It works for Rick. Right. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. I guess it works for everybody else. Yeah. Well, I uh, I'll tell you. I I just walked out of a classroom where I was uh working with a group of executives and, and these are executives um they're all in in big positions, right? Yeah. They all yeah. have great titles and great jobs but but the session that we were working on today was was not about leadership it was about followership mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. about how do we look for and identify ways that we can make the people around us more powerful mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and and we can support them and so when i hear you talk about um you know it, it's better to give than it is to receive and no one comes up on their own i mean what were some of the important relationships for you um, that supported your development, and and then conversely, what are some of the ways that you were consciously supporting the development of others? Well, my entire career has been yeah. about someone lending a hand down and lifting lifting me up. Mm. Uh, when I ran for Secretary of State in 2002, statewide office in South Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have these moments where you didn't succeed. So I lost mm-hmm. uh, by a small a small margin. But uh, but then I got a call from the president of Blue Cross Blue Shield mm-hmm. and says, you know, I watched you. You ran a good race. You're the kind of guy we need at Blue Cross. Mm-hmm. And he offered me a position as vice president of Blue Cross Blue Shield. It was my first entry into corporate America. Got it. Uh, and I can give you countless numbers of stories like that. Uh, even before that, when I was working at the university, you know, I worked hard. And I, I think that is one lesson in life. Work hard. You never know who's watching. Mm. And I got a call from the lieutenant governor. Says, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking for a chief of staff. And I, I've never been a chief of staff, but I'm open to it. Mm-hmm. Took the position. 
And that led into a whole different vertical regarding my political career. Mm-hmm. And what I've tried to do every step along my career is do the same to other young people. Yeah. I'm a very big proponent of mentoring and being all in. Uh, even at the U.S. Chamber, I've started a internship mentoring program with students from uh, historically black colleges, trying mm-hmm. to give them the same exposure uh, that I've gotten. Uh, pay it forward. Yeah. Uh, when you when you get it, pay it forward to others. Yeah. It's kind of what I believe in. What um, as we think about mentoring, it's a, a really popular topic on this show. What are some of the qualities that you try to bring to a relationship, a, a mentoring relationship, either when you're serving as the mentor or when you've been the mentee? What What do you think is really important? In well, those? I think you got to be really committed. I mm-hmm. think sometimes people loosely use the term mentor, mm-hmm. but it's a really serious transactional relationship uh, uh, attribute. Yeah, when we talk about being a mentor. And it's about being committed, being dedicated. I mean, it's about being there when those late night calls come in from your mentee. Yeah. And they're in a quagmire and having a problem. Mm -hmm. And are you willing to get up and take that call? Mm -hmm. Uh, It is about uh, uh, reducing yourself and expanding opportunities for your mentees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I brought my mentee with me here uh, 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 to Penn. Because I want him to experience the same types of uh, opportunities to sit with you and to talk with students and hope that he can be inspired. Mm-hmm. So it's just being all in. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't mean, again, not just from career advice, but the personal advice, yeah. uh, the challenges that uh, particularly young people are dealing with today are phenomenal. And they need an outlet. An outlet they often need somebody to talk to. And that mentor needs to be there. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a familiar family type of relationship when you're when you're all in. Yeah, and, and and I appreciate very much that you're you're emphasizing that it's it's not solely a professional That's relationship, right. Right? right? And and the boundaries. I mean, I, I think the boundaries continue to blur, right. you know, more and more between um, a professional life and the other facets of our life. And, right. and a mentor really has to understand a whole person. That's right. right? In fact, I got a quick story. My, my the dentist I uh, who I referred yeah. to earlier was my mentor mm-hmm. uh, in Lancaster, and we couldn't afford. Uh, my parents couldn't afford a an automobile and I want a car just like every college student did. Mm-hmm. So it was my mentor who says, listen, go pick one out. And he gave me a car. Wow. 10 years later, I did the same thing for a kid. Yeah. I had three cars, can't drive, but one, yep. he had a need. He couldn't get to school. And I gave him one of my vehicles. And so again, I think you gotta, you gotta mm-hmm. demonstrate, practice what you preach Absolutely. and, you know, pay it forward. Now, let me ask you one other question about mentoring, and that is, um, you know, the the benefits to the mentee, you know, they they get a lot of focus. Um, We encourage students all the time to find mentors. Um, What did what do you learn in the process of being a mentor? Um, What what are the things that that you discover either about um, other people or about yourself um, by being in that kind of a relationship? Oh, it's it's more rewarding for me, I think, than it is for the mentee. Right. Because, I mean, God, you know, I'm a little older, <laughs> and these guys bring amazing uh, ideas, and, and again, they're, they're, they're limitless. Uh, they're, 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 their ideas are infinite, and I grow from that, and to the extent I can help shape those ideas and those dreams and possibilities, I mean, it's, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. It's like watching a, a flower bloom, and, and, and to be a part of something like that is just amazing. Um, it works. Okay. It works. Right. Um, 
You, you said before that um, you know you've you've led a very interesting career. Um, you've been in a lot of different roles. I, I think you said um, most of them don't last more than sort of two or three <laughs> years before you're on to the next right. thing. Um, what do you look for in a in a, a new role, a new experience? How, how do you know that it's like wow, that one's really interesting. I should go try that. Well, it's been le- it's been less of that, okay. but experience is coming to me. Okay. Opportunities coming to me, which is really interesting. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever had to pursue a job. Uh, the jobs come to me for mm-hmm. whatever reason, and I, what I do know is when it's time for me to transition. Okay, is and that's when I feel I'm not growing. Uh, I'm not being as impactful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not uh, growing, not just professionally, but growing personally. Mm-hmm. And I, and I kind of, it's in my gut. I mean, right. I know when it's time to move on. And inevitably, there's an opportunity. I mean, I, I when I was vice president of Blue Cross Blue Shield, again, it wasn't part of the of, of the plan. Mm-hmm. And um, I got this call in 2007. Uh, this is Senator Barack Obama, and I'm looking for Rick Wade. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Rick Wade. Who are you? <laughs> but my point there is, right. you know, I took a chance. Yeah. And resigned from Blue Cross, moved to Chicago, and became one of the architects of then Senator Obama's first campaign. And from there, it just, the possibilities and the twists and turns have just been mm-hmm. phenomenal. But it wasn't part of the plan. Right. But I knew even that uh, when I was at Blue Cross, it was time for a change. It. And it was time for me to grow into my, continue to grow in my own purpose, right. uh, which, again, w- was big. I wanted to lead. Right. I wanted to be impactful. And and, and, I, and I, I really appreciate you highlighting. I mean, because there's some, there's some kind of self-monitoring, some self-checking in that needs yes. to happen for yes. you to know that, okay, in the role that I'm in, I've, I've, I've had impact, I've benefited greatly, I've grown, but I'm, I'm starting to reach the end of that, and I'm right. open to new possibilities. That takes some self-awareness. It does. Right? And some it, reflection. It does. And, you know, what I've learned, too, with a lot of my peers, I mean, and others uh, who, who measure that clock mm-hmm. by their salaries, by their mm-hmm. wages, how much money I'm making, how many cars— that's never been right. uh, my measure and my gauge right. for my uh, – uh, that, that's not where I check my temperature. Right. Uh, my temperature, again, is, is really about am I living in my own purpose and, and, and being impactful and helping others. You know, the Business Roundtable, which is a prominent business organization, just released a report about this sort of interesting uh, – so the notion of redefining what it means to be business. Yeah. Uh, that is not just profit, but it's about people. It's not right. just uh, – uh, 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 investing in uh, from shareholders, uh, the investment from shareholders, but it's investing in the communities. Yeah. And probably one of the most encouraging things, which I'm sure you know, is that these young people today are, I mean, they're waving a banner about purpose yeah. with, in business. And I'm excited about that because I think oftentimes uh, business uh, sort of gets the, 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 the message is that business is just by profit. Yeah. And it and becomes an echo chamber. And it becomes an echo chamber. Yeah. That's exactly right. Right. Um, this is Leadership in Action. It's Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. Uh, my guest is Rick Wade, who is currently uh, Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, please stay with us. We have a, a fan- fascinating interview uh, that's going on here. Um, Rick, I, I want to – I have to – 
make a decision in my mind here. All right. We're going to come back to that call from uh, then-Senator Barack Obama sure. uh, in a couple minutes here. But let, let's stay with the business roundtable. And, and as someone who has had uh, experience in both the, the private for-profit center and the government sector, um, how, how did you view that business roundtable statement? And um, do you think it's enough to start to shift the ways in which business is engaging with, you know, government, with community, um, with a broader set of purpose? Well, I, I think the statement, it, it, you read some of the commentary, sort of received uh, 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 cautious optimism, mm-hmm. uh, probably some skepticism, mm-hmm. uh, but it is aspirational yeah. that businesses can can view themselves and uh, as as investors in people and communities. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing some of that, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm encouraged. I mean, I think that's where we start mm-hmm. with the aspiration, setting a benchmark, setting a goal, but then the work has yeah. to be done to get there. And I think, but there's some great examples of companies that are doing amazing, uh, impactful mm-hmm. uh, investments in communities. Uh, it's something I'm working to lead at the U.S. Chamber mm-hmm. uh, to help carry that message and, and find the best practices for companies uh, and, 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 and show, showcase that yeah. uh, to other companies across business and industry. Yeah. I mean, one of my um, my own personal passions uh, in the world is just this process of how do we humanize organizations? Yes. Right. And, and remind ourselves that organizations are full of people which are ultimately serving other people. That's right. right? That's and, right. And, and those are um, that's the way a business exists in the world. And, you know, there, there's been so much talk over time about um, businesses role in, in generating wealth, right. right. And generating right. economic wealth right. and, and okay, certainly, I mean, I, I think as long as we have a, uh, this kind of system, which is predicated on growth to some degree, right. Mm-hmm. We need an engine mm-hmm. of growth. Um, but I'm, I'm always curious about the different, the different ways that we can think about wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we move it out of just the economic sphere and start to think about the social wealth that we can create, the knowledge right. wealth, the relational right. wealth. Um, right. you know, I, I, and especially given your role at the, at the chamber, um, I'd be curious, who do you see out there in the world that that you really feel like you could hold up and say, here's an organization that is um, that's really trying to have a broader impact than a profit impact? Mm-hmm. Well, there are many. In, in fact, I just spoke at a conference uh, about this issue, and I highlighted just one company. I only mentioned the company's name yeah. because – uh, they're, they're a brand, and that's AT&T. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the areas that I'm focusing on is how do you also uh, make those investments in communities that have been left behind? Right. Uh, and they have a, a fascinating model that's not only engaging uh, women and minority-owned companies, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and now they're investing in uh, companies in disadvantaged communities have been left behind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, at the end of the day, uh, what companies should be doing. Not just view yeah. themselves as net takers, right. uh, uh, but investing in communities. Yeah. And I'm just intrigued by their model. I'm intrigued by their commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion uh, broadly. Mm-hmm. And they're redefining that uh, in, in some ways that I've never seen. Yeah. Across business and industry, and and if we if we see you know companies like AT um, and T and 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 certainly others that are making investments, um, you know if if we want to put it in sort of the the starkest kind of economic terms. Mm-hmm. They're making investments in communities so that they have uh, employees which have better bases of support, 
right? right. And right. they have consumers right. who um, will be longer term, you know, m- both more loyal, right. um, as well as more able to engage right. um, as consumers in the market, right? right? And right. and I, I would like to believe it, it. You know, their motivation and our motivation extends even beyond that, right? Right That's to right. Um, more of the moral calling that I think we all feel to lift people up, right? Um, right. But there, there, there's an economic argument for this as well. Of course. Of right? course. Listen, I, again, I, I keep going back to how I grew up in, in Lancaster. I mean, mm-hmm. the industry there was a textile company, Springs Industries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, and I went to undergrad college because of a scholarship from Springs. Well, right. that's value. Right. Right. But I also recognize that when Springs Industries uh, in the 70s, when it shut down, mm-hmm. what happened to our community? Right. The entire social organization dismantled. Crime went up. Social ills and problems increase. So there is something to say about business and uh, being an anchor uh, in our communities. And I do think there's an unfair narrative uh, when we paint the brush painting all business the same. I Mm -hmm. mean, they're good businesses that are doing well and good at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just about profits. Yeah, purpose and, and, and we're talking, uh, you know, we're talking at the large sort yeah, yeah, of corporate yeah. sense yeah. as yeah. well. I mean, the role that small businesses uh, play, both as a driver of economic growth in this yeah. country, and they're but the job creators, as yeah. the anchor of communities. That's right, right. That's exactly right. right? Because the we local, go back to a dentist. Yeah, I mean, a local dentist. Uh, I mean, and, and again, back in my hometown community of Lancaster, back in the day, it was the guy who owned a little fish market, yep. the guy who owned the funeral home, who, yeah. who was the barber. They weren't. They they weren't just the barbers. They were our role models, and they kept the cohesive part of our community together. They brought cohesiveness. Right. They were a part of the social structure, and they provide real leadership. And we don't view them as much as we should right. as business leaders in our communities. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. I'm here in conversation with Rick Wade, who is currently the Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he's on campus here to speak over uh, with our good friends at the Fells Institute of Government, as well as meeting with a a number of our MBA students affiliated with uh, the African-American MBA Association as well. Um, Rick, we've been having just a um, fascinating conversation and a a rather wide-ranging one. Um, and you started to tell the story, but then I, I took us into to other realms of being at uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield and starting to sense that it was time for time for another change. Um, you wanted to make sure you were having kind of maximum impact in the world. You were learning and, and growing as a person. Um, and you got a call from then-Senator Barack Obama. So if you would, kind of... Tell us, why was the senator calling at that point? Well, one, I had been very involved uh, in South Carolina in politics. I'd mm-hmm. run statewide, as I mentioned, in 2002. Yep. I had worked in the General Assembly and yeah, very involved. And, and uh, obviously in the, in the in lineup of primary states as Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, yeah. uh, which is the state uh, of all the four uh, that has a more diverse population, particularly with regards to African Americans. Mm-hmm. So as a senator was, was exploring, uh, running, and building a team, uh, you know, he called me mm-hmm. <laughs> to, 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 to explore uh, the idea of, of being a part mm-hmm. of his vision for hope and change in America. And, and uh, yeah, I'm in a fraternity, Jeff. And I, when I first heard the call, I did use some expletives. I thought it was a fraternity brother playing a, a prank <laughs> joke. I won't use those on air. Right. But, <laughs> but as, as we talk further, I'm like, well, this is 
Barack. So, so we had a great conversation, and, and it, it just happened that uh, uh, I was going to be in Washington. I was back and forth in Washington at the time. We had mm-hmm. an office in D.C., and I said, Senator, listen, I'm going to be in D.C. Why don't we just get together face-to-face? Let's talk further. Okay. And that's what happened. All right. And, and so you decide to, to join the campaign? I did. I was an early adopter. I drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, I believed in uh, his vision for hope and change. Uh, I tell the story often. We met in the Senate antechamber uh, in, in, in uh, on Capitol Hill. And uh, Senator Obama, well, we, we called him Barack. That's the only way he would allow us to talk to him. But, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, we were sitting there having a conversation uh, about his campaign and as he was wooing me to be a part of it and and who opens the door and sort of peeks in but joe biden <laughs> so, I remember the lineup then yep. was joe biden and hillary clinton and chris dodd and right. the list went on and on and i knew i knew uh, joe biden as well but it was the funniest thing that he peeked his head in it's a, it was almost like what are you doing here <laughs> so but one of the most one of the most interesting things about that conversation, which I'll never forget, uh, when 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 Barack and I first met and talked, uh, was his confidence. Mm. And he used one line that I always remember. He said, "When I become president, here's what will happen. Here's what we can do together." Be clear. He didn't say if yeah. I become president, and that really was a major, major, major factor in my. You know, saying I'm in, and ultimately resigned from Blue Cross and and went uh, moved to Chicago uh, at a point in time, and mm-hmm. and I was honored uh, to be one of the early architects of his first campaign in 2008. And for our listeners, what um, give us a sense like what is it like to to build a campaign? Um, you know, I think a lot of us can picture. What a, a you know kind of corporate executive type mm-hmm. job is like. Um, we do have some experience at least watching elected officials and the way that they take up you know their roles. Um, but but the actual process of building and executing a campaign um, is a l- little less accessible, a little less visible to folks. Yeah. What, what is that like? Oh, it's grueling. It's it's, it's hard work. Right. Uh, in particular, in, in this case of, of this virtually unknown. Uh, person named Barack Obama who right. did not have the brand right. value and history, uh, say as of Joe Biden, yeah. for example, and and so it was building from ground up. Uh, it's building infrastructure, uh, which means you know teams organizing collaborative teams on the ground in mm-hmm. Iowa and South Carolina. Uh, I mean, so it, to, to that extent, it's just like corporate America. I mean, you're building an organization, mm-hmm. and every level of the structure has to be in place. Uh, you know, folks on the ground, campaign managers in each state, uh, the various positions, political directors, faith directors, every position, uh, every constituency uh, has to be managed. Mm-hmm. And so you're building a structure uh, that's very similar to a corporate structure uh, to some extent. Okay. I mean, we're... Think of voters as consumers, right? And you have to be able to manage that. But uh, it's it's rewarding. I mean, you build close relationships. My house in South Carolina became Grand Central uh, for campaign workers, and people were you know sleeping in the floors and on the sofas. Right. And so you build this amazing sense of community as well. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's in it for the same reason because you believe. Mm-hmm. In this case, uh, we believed in Senator Obama's vision for hope and change in America, and we believed in him. And that that in inspiration and motivation must be very clear mm-hmm. uh, because it's grueling late nights, uh, working all week, right. uh, no sleep, uh, especially when it gets closer to Election Day. 
Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, it, it certainly as we, we sit back and look in retrospect, but, mm-hmm. but even as I, you know, just kind of picture it now, I mean, to be able to do that kind of work, and you, you've used the word grueling a couple times, I mean, obviously it, it, it needs to come from someplace inside yes. you. Yes. Right. That that is motivated to have this kind of impact. And we, we've heard so much about, uh, you know, President Obama's history in community organizing and, and activism. Um, how did that experience for, for him and, and for many of the, the key campaign staff, how did that inform the way that you built this organization? Well, it, a, a great deal. I mean, he already uh, had the model because he'd already lived the model right. through community organization. Right. So we became known as a community organizing campaign, right. which is very interesting. But it came from a top. Yeah. It came from the leadership uh, who had already set the tone and example that we're going to build this campaign community by community, brick by brick, person by person, mm-hmm. knocking on every, every door. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really was a, a fascinating model of what I still believe and wish we could ever return to just retail politics. Yeah. Uh, getting out there. I mean, now in the days of tweets and social media and all and technology, uh, I miss that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the old school way of, of, of politicking right. is going to the fish rise and, and all of these things where you're, you're talking to people mm-hmm. and you're interacting with people and you're hearing your, their hopes and their dreams. And that's that's what makes America amazing to me. Is that magic? Mm-hmm. And we had a chance to experience that uh, in uh, doing the Obama campaign. Yeah. And I know um, uh, you've, you've gotten a, a lot of recognition, a lot of accolades for the South Carolina strategy that was used. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about that strategy um, and, and kind of where it, where it came from? Where, where was it birthed from? Well, again, it, it, in part, I think it was birthed from my growing up in South Carolina. So uh-huh. I know South Carolina right. first. And we we had, again, introduced this virtually unknown senator uh, to uh, South Carolinians, particularly in the primary, where, as you know, uh, there's a disproportionate number uh, of African-Americans who vote. And it's the first contest, Iowa, New Hampshire, yeah. Nevada, and South Carolina. Yeah. And I would argue to this day that South Carolina was a critical turning point because mm-hmm. we had won Iowa uh, uh, lost tide, New Hampshire, Nevada, and now we're in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, the senator even saying at the time, you know, we don't win, we're out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> that sounds like a fair amount of pressure. But, yeah. but you know, we did uh, obviously the traditional things I mean, in, in the black community, particularly because we're in the primary. Yeah. You know, you, you do the churches, and but you touch people. And, and obviously there was a lot of inspiration by the idea of him being the first African-American president. Mm-hmm. And, and you could never replace that. Uh, and But we did the traditional things. But I got to admit, one of the fun things that I implemented, which I'm proud of, uh, we had a retreat at my home with David Pluff and, and, and some other senior campaign people. And I had a crazy idea. I said, you know what? I think we should start taking him to barbershops. And everybody looked at me and like, barbershops? Mm-hmm. Well, in African-American community, yeah. uh, barbershops and beauty salons where conversations take place. Right. In fact, I know that because uh, my girlfriend told me one time, you were the subject in the bar in, in the beauty salon. So, like, so it is a place where conversation takes place. Right. And we successfully executed that. Now there's what's called the barbershop and beauty salon strategy yeah. in campaigns. And so we took them to barbershops all across South Carolina, yeah. and it became viral. 
that this guy, is, he's one of us. Mm-hmm. And, and we brought in uh, these factions of our communities, of the electorate that never been really engaged. And so it was a whole lot of a combination of strategies. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, again, it, it, the, the leader sets the tone. That tone about hope and change uh, permeated throughout the electorate. And the rest is history, man. You know, yeah. It's a part of history. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always struck. And I, I, I told you that I, I just walked out of this classroom um, talking about, you know, what great followership looks like. Um, and uh, the Gallup organization did a big study that said, what, what do followers need from their leaders? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, four things came out of it that were sort of clear as day in, in all the responses that they got. They got they needed trust, they needed compassion, they needed some stability, and then they needed hope, yeah. right? And yes. the, the really interesting result that they found is that um, for, and, and again, this is kind of an, in, in an organizational context, for employees who feel enthusiastic about their future, and, and that's broken into two categories. I feel in optimism about the future of this organization mm-hmm. and then I feel mm-hmm. optimism about my place within the organization right right so right. it has it has both aspects to it if that's true 69% of those employees reported self-reported that they were highly engaged in the work that they were doing mm-hmm. and without mm-hmm. that level of hope that 69% drops to 1% wow Right, wow. that that would say I'm highly engaged. I'm I'm still looking for that one percent because I want to interview right, them right, about right, like right, what's right, keeping them right. engaged. But every time I teach that, I think back to that campaign mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that that sense of hope, mm-hmm. right? That was mm-hmm. communicated through really all aspects mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Um, you know the campaign messaging and mm-hmm. and the work that he was doing, but that so many other people were doing on mm-hmm. on his behalf. Um, what does it take to sustain that hope in the kind of grueling, you know, campaign that you were talking about for the the duration? I mean, the the length of campaigns we've all noted, you know, in, mm-hmm. has just extended and extended. Mm-hmm. Um, what sustains hope for not just the voter, but for the the campaign worker in, in those situations? Well, you know, one one way you, you can you can you can see how what has manifested in I mean this rise of numbers of young people. Yeah. Who decided themselves to run for office. Right. So something caught. Right. Right. And you've got to keep nurturing and watering uh, this process mm-hmm. because that's where it begins. And I, I mean, I'm struck. I mean, one, I, I can't afford it anymore. But, you know, I start getting all these calls. I'm running for office now because I believe in hope and change. Right. And and. I need some money. <laughs> so, but that that's right. what this should be about, right? right? That you're inspiring these new generations of, of and particularly young people who want to see a different kind of America, the kind of America they envision. Yeah. And they, they're running for office right. in ways that we've never seen before. And I attribute that again to the example of the Obama campaign and this, this, this drove the young people who got involved. Yeah. And they running for from school board to county council to Congress. Uh, it's just been fascinating to watch. Um, let me remind our listeners that uh, I'm Jeff Klein, and you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. Uh, I'm in the studio today with Rick Wade, who is the Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and we've been talking about uh, Rick's role within the, the Obama campaign. Um, Rick, one of the things, so our university president here, Amy Gutman, um, has uh, has a political science background, is a, a fantastic author in her own right. Um, and she's done a lot of work um, trying to identify the difference between 
what it takes to succeed in a campaign versus what it succeed what it takes to succeed as an elected official and what that mm. transition is like from campaigning mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Um, taking office. What was it like for you? Because you um, and I'd like to hear about some of the the roles that you played within the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. How does how does the work change? How does engagement change? After the election, um, when now it's time to take up the work and and really try and have the impact mm-hmm. um, that everyone hoped for, mm-hmm. you know that's a great question, and, and it's vastly different that transition. Yeah, but it's also inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. It should be that mm-hmm. if we run on hope and change, then obviously the expectation is that there will be hope and change. Right. But the stark reality is once you are in the White House and, you know, in, in, during the administration, you know, I, I took a number of roles at commerce because mm-hmm. I came from business. Yeah. It's not easy to change. <laughs> That's the, that, I mean, that was the reality. Right. And so so I think we did uh, tremendously well. But mm-hmm. uh, but but that is what ha- I mean, you, you, as a candidate, you can espouse all of the big ideas and the big plans and goals. Mm-hmm. But then how do you implement that? Right. With the limitations and barriers of this thing called government. Right. And that's not easy. Right. That's not easy. And, you know, it, it, as 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 hardworking as the civil servants, the employees of our federal government are, and I've witnessed it at the state level and federal level, those institutions are difficult to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the innovation that's needed, mm-hmm. uh, uh, transparency. There's a number of things there that I that, that we could learn from business, for example, mm-hmm. but it's difficult to implement in cultures that have been the same for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. And um, when you think about, you know, leading teams and Mm -hmm. and leading organizations um, within those kinds of elected and appointed government roles, um, what are some of the, you know, maybe lessons or opportunities that come from a a business setting that could be better taken advantage of within a within a government setting? Well, like I said, I mean, I just, you start with innovation. Uh-huh. I mean, I think they're great examples of, of innovative models mm-hmm. from the private sector side that could be uh, utilized uh, uh, and, and create efficiencies in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you from at the Department of Commerce, when I was chief of staff and deputy and senior advisor to Gary Locke, mm-hmm. uh, and incidentally, I was the interim uh, we didn't have a commerce secretary on day one, so mm. the president asked me to go hold the fort. So mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of running the department for probably the first three and a half, four months, and just bringing in new ideas uh, from the private sector, right. uh, process improvements uh, that we knew would be good, but they're difficult to implement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what change is about, though. Mm-hmm. But what we learn is you got to bring those employees along with you in that process. You can't say, here it is, uh, mm-hmm. make it happen. And I think Gary Locke, who I ended up working with uh, for a couple of years, mm-hmm. was really, really deliberate and good at leading from the bottom and uh, making right. sure right. that those civil servants, those employees, uh, not just political appointees, because right. there's a whole, that's a, that's, that's a whole different conversation. Right. Uh, and because some of the government people would say, listen, we'll wait you out. Yeah. You're not going to be here no more than four or eight years. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not the approach you want to take. You want to bring them in and create sustainable, long-term, impactful change in these agencies and organizations. And that's how that's the position in which we operated from. Yeah, and, and when I hear you say kind of leading from the bottom, um, 
you know, it, it, it kind of takes me back to your comments about the campaign in South mm-hmm. Carolina and that, that notion of retail politics and building relationships mm-hmm. and how essential they'll be um, now even in, in the role at Commerce to bring that group of civil servants along. That's right. Right? That's exactly right. So um, you're now at the U.S. Chamber, mm-hmm. right? And you are the highest ranking African-American in the Chamber's 100-plus year history, if I have that right. That's what I'm told. All right. So um, tell us about the work at the chamber and some of the things that you're excited about there. Well, I'm, I'm extremely excited to be at the chamber. And, and, and if I could make one, again, these tr- strange twists in my careers, yeah. it was the Department of Commerce experience that I think has led me to where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my first tasks uh, after being at the Department of Commerce and the Obama, Obama administration, after being there for four weeks, they said they they came to me. Some of the international folks at the chamber says, "You have to lead a trade mission to India." Well, I've never been on a trade mission, <laughs> and okay. so I led a whole business delegation of U.S. companies to Mumbai and Chennai and New Delhi, uh, uh, looking at new market opportunities, mm-hmm. and, and 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 ended up doing many of those across the world, mm-hmm. and being in meetings with some of the most prominent. CEOs, all of whom would come through the Department of Commerce uh, right. for various issues. And I remember uh, being in a meeting with at that time in in 2009 with Sheryl Sandberg. I re- mm-hmm. and, and I, I wasn't even I wasn't a cool guy who really understood Facebook at the time, mm-hmm. but met some phenomenal people, and 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 brought in uh, a lot of the key influencers that I met on the campaign. I also had the fun role during the campaign of being a liaison to athletes and entertainers. Mm. So whether it was Oprah or Magic Johnson or Forrest Whitaker, I brought all of them into the Department of Commerce world. I say that to say I'm doing that same thing at the Chamber of Commerce, right. but in a private sector organization and just having a ton of fun. We're we're leading, uh, we're moving the Chamber uh, in a direction that I think is good for business, making mm-hmm. it more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're broadening our footprint uh, across America to engage more women and minorities mm-hmm. uh, in the chamber, in the work that we do. Uh, entrepreneurship, uh, inspiring entrepreneurs is a big initiative that I'm leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, created a whole fascinating partnership called the Next Gen Business Partnership, mm-hmm. which is all about inspiring this new generation uh, of African-American and Hispanic and Latino uh, business owners. Mm-hmm. And we have a partnership with Historically Black Colleges. Uh, partnership with the NFL, uh, mm-hmm. engaging uh, professional athletes uh, who are business owners. So I got the best job, yeah, in the ah, world. That's fantastic. And I got a paintbrush and a canvas, and I'm just painting away. <laughs> so. uh, well, I'll tell you. So let, let me. I, I have time for one last question here, right? And yeah. We started this whole conversation off, and, and we noted, you know, kind of the energy of the college campus, and, and talked about you walking around the University of South Carolina um, back back in your undergraduate days. For these students and for our listeners, um, the people who want to have uh, an impact in the world, right, and they, they want to be a part of creating the kind of world that, that, that they're proud to live in, they're proud for their kids to live in, what advice do you have for them as they take this first step um, into their careers? Create the world, uh, paint the world, and to do that, I say color outside of the lines, and when I say that, get out of your box. Right. Just go into communities, meet people that you don't know, mm-hmm. go places you've never been. 
And that's how you can shape the world that you want to see and therefore make it happen. Color outside of the lines. Uh, Rick, thanks so Thank much you. for being here today. Thank you. All right. Um, let me ask you one actually one last thing. Um, for our listeners who want to find out more about some of these programs that you've mentioned at the Chamber of Commerce, how would, how would they get more information? Well, uschamber.com okay. uh, certainly is our website. And, and so you can find me there. Okay. Uh, and I, I would be grateful and thankful to engage any of your listeners and, and get their thoughts on the work we're doing. All right. Thanks, Rick. And, and thanks for all the work that you're doing to build this this next class of small business owners, of entrepreneurs um, who really are the, the engine that drives this That's American right. economic system. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 